and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. How has 2022 treated you so far? Or rather, what have you done to make the year get off to a good start? If you don't actively do something, don't expect it to just all fall into place. I had to tell a friend this this week. I've ensured this year has begun the way I'd like to by using my Friday afternoons to schedule my following week. And then every morning I read the list and ensure that the items get done. And yes, all I've said tie into this week's metaphor. Have you guessed it yet? I'll tell you soon. Our guest today is Paula Johannesson, who will be talking about her journey of self-love. Many of us will relate to how looking inwards can be tricky with certain people, processes or places inspiring some of our worst tendencies. But before we chat with her, we'll be taking a dive into her chosen metaphor, something a lot of us have used and one that'll probably stick around for quite a while. Paula's metaphor is, the grass is always greener. But you know, I say that. I always thought it was the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Our metaphor for today's episode is one that many of us are familiar with. The grass is always greener on the other side. The meaning of which is, if you're unhappy with your current circumstances, what you don't have can seem much more appealing. But in reality, these other people or things have their own problems too. At its extreme, it is a saying that warns envy and greed will not lead to satisfaction. A famous example of this, which is what we're going to discuss today, is the lost city of El Dorado. The legend of a lost city of gold. I'm sure we've all heard of this legend, a city made completely of gold that the Spanish conquistadors and famous explorers such as Sir Walter Raleigh, Gonzalo Pizarro and Francisco de Orellana all attempted to find. But famously, although many other places were unintentionally discovered by this quest, none of them ever found the legendary city of gold. El Dorado is a myth, as, as you are saying. So it was never actual thing. It was something that was constructed by Europeans. And, and people started to question what's El Dorado. El Dorado literally means the golden one. But did you know that El Dorado actually did exist? Don't get too excited. There isn't actually a golden city. The legend of the golden city began with a very real country called Muisca, now known as Colombia. In the late 1400s, and for a good century or so after, Spain was in an era of conquering many lands with a force known as the Spanish conquistadors. The conquistadors were essentially bands of sanctioned pirates who were infamous for their goals to conquer, kill and enslave. Spain conquered the Aztec, Mayan and Incan empires. Driven by greed and a lust for power, they famously massacred these ancient civilizations for the sake of control and wealth. So where does Muisca come in? In 1536, the Spanish conquistadors heard a legend called El Hombre Dorado, 
or The Golden Man, about a king who covered himself in gold dust and threw himself into a lake to offer the gold to the gods. Upon hearing this tale, the conquistadors set off to try and find the place of The Golden Man and eventually found Muisca. Muisca, it turned out, had lots of imported gold and gold to them was a very important component in crowning a new leader known as the zipper. The ritual of crowning a new zipper involved them covering themselves in gold dust and jumping into Lake Guavita, a sacred lake that came to be known as the Lake of Fool's Gold. You can probably see where this is going, but we'll get to why later. The zipper would sail into the middle of the lake on a small raft and jump into the water to offer the gold dust to the moon goddess Chia, whilst gold trinkets were also thrown into the lake as part of the ceremony. When the conquistadors saw that the legend of the golden man was true, they cruelly enslaved and conquered the Muiscan people, putting them in war camps and seizing all of their gold. But the amount of gold they stole was never enough. This short clip explains why. Now, the Spanish were all about gold as currency, but the Muisca people and almost every other Central and South American civilization didn't have money-based economies. It was all about the barter, baby. So without using gold as coin, the only other use they had for it was decorative. Jewelry, sculpture, stuff like that. And as a non-corrosive metal, there's no better choice if you're looking for stuff to throw in a lake without ruining it. But put yourself into the mind of a conquistador for a minute. To you, gold is everything. Everything. It's money, and money means power and fame and a hero's welcome back in Spain and everything you could ever want. And these people are just parading around in the streets wearing your entire annual salary and not even noticing. There are two conclusions you can draw for what's going on. Door number one, the Muisca don't assign the same value to gold as we do, and since their economy is entirely trade-based with no currency as a middleman, they have no other use for gold than jewelry and art. They use it for display because it's sparkly and it doesn't corrode, and that's all that matters when you're not assigning it an artificial social value. Door number two, these Savages must have so much gold squirreled away somewhere that they can afford to just parade around in it like it's nothing, and that means the real mother load has to be hidden somewhere else. So the realization of the conquistadors that Alhambro Dorado, or the Golden Man, did actually exist resulted in two snowballs of events. The first was that the Spanish immediately decided that because there was a golden man and a golden lake, there must be a city made of gold as well. So the search for El Dorado began. El Dorado actually just means the gold in Spanish. So really, they weren't so much searching for a particular place as there were an immense amount of gold that they believed the natives were hiding. The second snowball of events that happened after the discovery of this golden lake ensued three desperate attempts to retrieve the gold inside. So the Zipa coronation ceremonies unsurprisingly left the lake pretty full of shiny golden artifacts and the conquistadors wanted it. But lake dredging technology wasn't exactly peaking in 1540, so the process wasn't easy. In 1545, two conquistadors attempted to manually lower the water level with a bucket chain that took three months and only lowered the water level by 10 feet. But they did pull out $100,000 worth of gold by today's standards, so that's nothing to sneeze at, I guess. More than I get out of my swimming trips anyway. Then again in 1580, an entrepreneur named Antonio de Sepulveda set up a workforce to dig 
dig a huge notch into the side of the lake, lowering the water level by 65 feet and retrieving $300,000 worth of gold before the notch collapsed and killed all his workers. Somehow he managed to die broke. Things then stagnated for a bit until 1898 when a British-controlled company creatively titled The Company for the Exploitation of the Lagoon of Guadavita set up a huge pump that drained the entire lake down to four feet of muck and slime, which hardened into concrete under the sun, rendering almost all the gold totally irretrievable. They dredged up a small amount of gold, under $80,000 by today's standards, and went bankrupt shortly thereafter. Gee, it's almost like this place is deeply sacred somehow, and f***ing with it is asking for trouble. Anyway, it's been a protected site since 1965, so don't go getting any ideas. The Spanish, in reality, did not give up easily when it came to uncovering the material treasures that could be found throughout South America. Throughout their occupation, it seemed if any explorer or native hinted at the idea of a hidden pot of gold, the Spanish had already pulled on their sabatons and were on their way. However, these expeditions brought about great loss for everyone involved. Entire civilizations were destroyed, whilst the Spanish literally fell prey to their greed. The lost city of El Dorado has since become a legend. The idea of looking for it, a fruitless task, racked with danger and disappointment. In fact, a great metaphor in itself for the grass is always greener. This week, I'm joined by traveller Paula Johannesson. She'll be talking about some of the biggest life changes you can make in order to commit to loving yourself. Having divorced, moved country and changed career all in a short period of time, you'd think she'd see the glass half empty. For joining me on metaphorically speaking when thank you for having me <laughs> when we were thinking about this metaphor i thought of you instantly and the reason why is because from the time that i've known you you have done so many different things um you've traveled and i wondered whether for you if the saying grass is always greener if that was true or not Yes. So I have lived most of my life thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side. And I, it just recently that I started shifting how I was thinking in, in that, in those terms. I think that we tend to think that it's external factors such as the grass being greener that will bring us happiness and everything that we're looking for. But I've realized in the past year that it's not the external factors, um, the grass. It's actually everything internal. And I don't think it always matters where we go or what we do in terms of external factors thinking. For example, oh, if I move to this house, I'll, I'll be happier. If I get this car, I'll be happier. Or if I get out of this relationship or if I get in this relationship, I'll be happier. It's most of the times work we have to do within ourselves. And having gone to that realization has really changed my life and how I see things and view things. So, so I want to say that for me, it has nothing to do with the grass. Uh, it, it has to do with self-love and the work that you do um, and and the happiness that you create within yourself. So the grass is just another addition 
to you know an external factor but the work is always within yourself and until you do that work i don't think any grass will make you happy now it's a phrase that is very popular can you think back as to when you might have heard it you know generally mm-hmm. speaking i think when i heard it the first time delia mhm i think it was in my teenage years and i was unhappy with something and i want to say it might have been my dad who told me while i was complaining and he said be grateful uh, the grass isn't always greener on the other side and be grateful what you have and while that is we should all be very grateful for what we have and where we're currently at in our lives but it doesn't mean that you should settle you know i think I, that I, is the word settle mm-hmm. you know a, a lot of us we do that in life we just settle for what is presented to us or settle in the atmosphere our surroundings but it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily make us happy and i say this to people a lot i remember that i had a book to read and it took me a very very long time to read it but when i finally got to it it made me realize that most of my life i had been settling and mm-hmm. i was at that time in a relationship where i wasn't happy and i was doing this book when the relationship had ended and it had ended and the other person had ended it and i was so annoyed with myself because i wanted to end it for a very long time but mm-hmm. i just kept staying because i thought well i can't go now because he's lost his job i can't go now because you know something's happened to his family member and i just kept doing what was best for him and in that book there was one question and it it asks what made you happy and i started writing the answer very quickly mm-hmm. but i read the answer back that's when i realized that the answer pertains to me making my partner happy as opposed to making me happy and that's when i made the decision to con- to continue reading that book and mm-hmm. face the fact of our metaphor the grass is greener on the other side you know the metaphor comes in in different forms i've heard people say the grass isn't greener on the other side the grass is greener on the uh, on the other side and i just made sure that my grass was greener on the other side that mm-hmm. i have more control of it sounds yeah. very similar to what you said yes yes i i i think that when we take these big decisions and make these changes in our lives we obviously want it to have a positive outcome and it's it's within us it i i don't think it always has to do with with the grass being greener on the other side or not i think it's if i take this decision now why am i doing this am i doing it for myself or am i doing it for another person and in in this society where especially as women we've been taught to always look after men and please men and we tend to forget about ourselves and i've been in a relationship like that myself for many years and i think it's important to go back to our to to who am i what do i want what makes me happy and then go for that and the grass will be greener on the other side as long as the focus is on you and your happiness it will always be a good decision to make a change in your life when you're doing it for yourself and sometimes you can't always do it the place that you are sometimes you have to make a change and that change mm-hmm. means leaving a relationship or leaving even a country mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. we met we were both both based 
in Texas. I was in Marfa and you were in El Paso. You've since done some movement. Where have you been? So since that, um, which I want to say is about a year ago that I last saw you, I have moved to Hawaii and probably the best decision ever in my life. And I'm not going to say it was easy. Um, I, I got a divorce. I, I got out of my marriage and moved to Hawaii. And of course, I was very, very scared. I didn't know anyone here. And to start over, I don't want to say, you know, that it's easier the younger you are. Uh, but I, I mean, I just turned 30 two weeks ago. And I said, Oh, no, like, am I too old to do this to move to an island and, you know, start a new life, but it's never too late. And uh, while it was very scary and not knowing anyone, and I, I was really scared to feel lonely and and sad. And I, I have to say that not a single day or not even a minute have I felt like that. Because also, again, it's not about being surrounded by friends. It's not about being surrounded by family. It's about the work you do within yourself. And, and since I got out of my marriage, I have really done a lot of work on loving myself and and living for me and not for anyone else. And when you do that, you will never feel lonely. I can move to Japan tomorrow and I would be fine because I know I have myself. I, I, I got my own back. And, and and you will always be fine when, when you look out for yourself and, and put yourself first. And I since I moved here in January, I have made so many friends and I'm so happy. I'm doing so many activities and new things that I wouldn't do when I was married. And I'm just living life and doing what I feel like in the moment. And I'm, I'm very, very, very happy. And when, when you said in January, you meant January 2021, right? Yes, that's when what? I moved here. Why Hawaii? I came here on vacation in 2019, the year before COVID, and I I have moved around a lot as as a young adult uh, due to studies or work. So I've been living in many different countries, and I had a feeling always when moving around, like, oh, this is not the place. Maybe the next one I'll be happier, and the next one I'll be happier. Thinking the grass is green on the other side, and I, I thought it was those external factors that would make me happy. But when I was here on vacation, I really, really liked it so much. And I was really sad to go home. And I think it was the first time I've been on a vacation and didn't didn't want to go home. So I always had that feeling that Hawaii might be a good place for me to be. And when I decided to end my marriage, uh, I thought, why not now? And, and just went for it. And very happy about the decision and i think that as happy as i am here now i think i would have been equally happy if i moved elsewhere because again it it really doesn't have to do with external factors but to have palm trees and ocean view and everything of course it helps but i i always think it's it's within you your happiness and not in any external factors do you speak the language no so they they speak uh, their native language is not really spoken here only only within local families but everyone speaks english here okay yeah and where were you from originally from sweden so i'm very far away from home <laughs> well yeah so you you have traveled a lot and moved a lot so for you definitely the metaphor grass is greener on the other side that works as opposed to isn't greener and paula you've told us a lot about yourself and you know 
your personal self and your personal growth. And I really wish you the best and more growth. And as you say, it's not only the place where you live, but it's the frame of mind and mm-hmm. doing the things that make you happy. Yes. So as long as your decision is for you, whatever you're changing in your life, whether that's relationship status or a move, as long as you're taking yourself into account and making the decision for you, the decision will always be good and the grass will always be greener on the other side. the show you heard a fascinating tale of adventure greed and loss to round up the show we'll be taking a look at how this colorful idiom is used in a slightly different part of the world the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence It's an expression which, interestingly enough, is understood and used in a whole variety of languages. Some countries express it in their own way, such as the Vietnamese who say they or standing on this mountaintop, looking at that one. But not only can the concept behind the idiom be found across the globe, but the literal words referencing a neighbor's lawn and even sometimes a fence. From Japan to Denmark to one of its earliest uses, Latin, this concept of misplaced envy seems to be relatable to us humans throughout time and space. In fact, it was Ovid in his series of poems, The Art of Love, who first used the proverb, the harvest is always richer in another man's field. His poems are what you might think of as an early self-help series, one that in fact can still be applied today, with a pinch of salt, of course. Back in 2 AD, Ovid released his three works to teach interesting Romans the art of love. The first two books, aimed at men, describes how to find a woman and keep her. The third, which was aimed at women, was how to win and keep the love of a man. In fact, these works can still be thought of as applicable today. The advice they prefer, discuss great places to meet the other sex with do's and don'ts all catered to if you're looking for something serious or just an evening of fun. What it do, y'all? Many of you have probably heard of Publius Ovidius Nasa, better known by his street name Ovid, most famous for his epic poem Metamorphoses. But what a lot of people don't know is that Ovid considered himself a master of the ladies and wrote a whole book full of dating advice called Ars Amatoria, or The Art of Love. Now, Ovid said, If anyone among this people knows not the art of loving, let him read my poem, and having read, be skilled in love. So let's take a look at this pimp master's advice. Showtime at the Apollo Amphitheater. Do your hunting in the round theaters. There will you find an object for passion or for deception, something to taste but once, or to keep, if you so wish. To chastity, that place is fatal. Other tips in the series include being cautious of alcohol when flirting, being open to a friendship leading to love, and of course, not forgetting her birthday. Ovid's other well-known text, Metamorphosis, brings us back to the emotion associated with today's proverb, jealousy. 
Other notable authors, such as Shakespeare and Chaucer, have also described this particular feeling using the well-known description green with envy. But why is envy green? We all feel blue every once in a while. The vast emptiness of the sky or ocean can feel relatable when you're in a funk. The word itself even sounds a bit like a moan. Red is also a fairly obvious colour. We might get red in the face when we feel angry or even see red, as the expression goes. But why green with envy? This idea takes us back as far as ancient Greece when people believed that the emotion of jealousy was caused by an overproduction of green bile. The Elizabethans agreed, which is why the term is found in the works of Shakespeare more than once. Imagine a lord from this time turning a shade of green after eating a slightly rotten fruit. Maybe the food was a bit green itself. Linking emotion to sickness was really how this came about, with jealousy feeling like a sickness of the soul. You might agree. In fact, this belief, which comes under the theory of the four humours, was a common medical theory used by Europeans up until the 1800s, which is probably why the expression green with envy is still with us today. I cannot emphasise enough the importance of the four humours and how you must observe and record symptoms so that you may properly treat a disease. I believe that man's body is made up of four key humours. These are blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile. Blood, of course, is hot and moist. Phlegm is cold and wet. Yellow bile is hot and dry. And black bile is cold and dry. When all four humours are properly balanced, a man is in perfect health. But when there is too much or too little of one of the humours, or it is entirely missing from the body, illness or disease occurs. Through observation, we're able to see which of the humours are out of balance. This can then be treated with opposites. Uh, for instance, if a man has too much phlegm, which is cold and wet, he should be treated with something hot and fiery, such as pepper. Finally, when associating the colour green with envy, you might conjure up an image of a green-eyed monster, jealousy personified. Again, a reference to Shakespeare in his play Othello. Beware, my lord, of jealousy! It is the green-eyed monster that doth mock the meat it feeds on. If you're not overly familiar with the play, we have two friends, Iago and Othello. Well, Othello considers Iago his closest confidant, whilst Iago is out to ruin Othello's life. In the scene you just heard, Iago is trying to position Othello's mind with the idea that his true love is in fact cheating on him. What makes this line so successful is the way Iago paints a picture of an ugly monster in our minds. Not only does he reference something ordinary, the feeling of envy, but he creates a whole new character with it, and then warns Othello to be wary of this beast. Of course, the way we associate colours with emotions is also heavily affected by our own cultures and upbringings. We each have very personal stories with certain colours. Maybe you love wearing turquoise. It makes you happy, not sad. 
Or maybe the idea of white trainers stress you out, the hue commonly associated with peace and harmony. But it is fascinating to see how the relationships with certain colors have come about and shifted throughout time. It's even more interesting how they've stuck in our language. From gold in South America to green in Europe, we've had a truly colorful day here at Metaphorically Speaking. Next time you hear the phrase, the grass is always greener, what will you picture? I still think of the saying as, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And I think the stories match it too. But I must admit, I have learned a lot today and I will be looking at colors differently. I bet anything sounds better now after hearing about drowning in pools of gold or being engulfed by a terrible emotional monster. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Thank you, Paula Johannesson, for speaking with me today. Don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach me at colorful.com slash shows slash Delia and use the contact tab or email info at metaphoricallyspeaking.uk. And we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify, and all major streaming platforms. It's also on Facebook Podcasts too. We depend on you to help us grow so we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. You must admit the educational value that you had on today's show. Come on, admit it. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking, created by Delia Delore Productions, with original distribution by Colourful. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Abby Sames. Script supervisor, Sabina Lauchopra Garcia. Production assistance and social media graphics by Odua Osemwenke. The final programme was edited by Jonathan Woods. And social media videos by Ernie Deneve.